Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And welcome to Living Free. On 3CR Community Radio, 855 kHz on your AM dial. Uh, thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show highlighting issues around homelessness. Uh, my name's Bill. And my guests today are talking about alcoholism, the family disease. Um, Emily and Juanita are here from Alaron Family Groups, and they're going to share their experience of living with the effects of alcoholism and how Alaron has helped them. Uh, so we usually start talking about growing up and what life's like, what the sorts of things that influenced us when we were young. Um, so Emily, start with you. What was, what was your life like growing up? Um, well, I was the eldest of three children and, uh, I grew up in a small-ish country town in New South Wales and, um, I grew up with my mum and my dad, um, in, they... Yeah, it was it was actually a very nice childhood in many respects. We have we had a lovely. They bought this big fixer upper, and uh, it had this enormous backyard. And my dad was very much into um, gardening, so we had chooks and ducks and um, and animals. And dad um, had created a little shed down the back um, for me, and uh, that was quite a happy time. Um, my dad also, you know, um, liked to drink, so there was a lot of sort of uh, um, parties and socialising. We had a large circle of friends and mum and dad would do things like go camping with large groups of friends and I remember running around with a lot of people. They were very social social people. Um, but there was always a lot of tension in our house um, and dramas that would explode into fighting um i rem- <laughs> for example i remember one particular uh argument that resulted in my mother sh- chasing my dad around the house with a around the outside of the house <laughs> with a shoe <laughs> trying to belt him with <laughs> the shoe um um but all of those you know when you're a kid those kinds of things just uh you sort of roll with the with the punches, so to speak. But um, my mum and dad were never content or particularly happy. There was moments of happiness, but my mum particularly was often quite um, unhappy and discontent. Um, and the their relationship was. Often one where, you know, my dad was never quite good enough. He didn't quite meet mum's expectations. Um, And mum was very vocal about that. And there was a lot of um, critical, you know, she was very critical of my father. um, Not least because, you know, rightly or wrongly, dad would often prefer to be at the pub than at home. And a lot of the activities he did... um, for example, uh, playing a lot of sport or um, 
going on these, you know, fantastic weekends away with big groups of families were, I think my mum quite accurately saw really as about booze and about drinking. Um, but the, the way in which it unfolded in my family home was that my mother's behaviour was really, really difficult. She was someone that we had to walk around eggshells on um, and who was prone to criti- criti- really, being really critical. And when she was upset or didn't feel like, um, you know, a, a standard complaint, you know, you, you would be um, if, if you loved your kids and if you loved me, you wouldn't be at the pub so much. And um, that kind of... That kind of criticism and this dynamic of setting up expectations, you know, your dad should come and your dad should do this and your dad should do that and then dad never doing it <laughs> quite as, as well as he ought to um, or not quite getting it right uh, became the, became, really became the defining dynamic in our home. So why do you think your mum was like that? Um spent many years and lots of money on therapists plumbing the depths of my mother's psyche um no I know why she was like that now for the same reasons that I probably became like that myself um my mum grew up with uh in a home with two alcoholic parents um and you know some of the conversations I have with her now about what went on in her family um her father was never home. Her father, you know, lost his licence for drink driving in the 50s and moved to another state and started a new family, you know, these sort of things. Um, but my mum's mother was a really hard woman, seems. Um, a lot of... Mum recently revealed to me that, you know, she wasn't allowed to move a cushion on the couch or she would be in trouble. Mm. Um, and that was very get a sense that my mother never felt loved or wanted as a child. And, you know, any time we go through the family albums, she'll be very quick to point out my grandmother in almost every photograph has a cigarette in one hand and a drink in the other. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's life. Yes, that's life growing up with alcoholism. Um, so how about you, uh, Juanita? Mm. What's your, what was your early childhood? Mm. My early childhood, well, some of my earliest memories are growing up in a country town in Victoria. Um, My mum was divorced at 23. My dad left uh, for our babysitter, actually, and we lived in a caravan park because mum had been married at 17, had my brother at 18, uh, and then me at 20. And she was always working three jobs. Um, It was a real mixture of being the most awesome childhood you could ever... No one could write a better childhood. There was a lot of tree climbing, a lot of swimming in the river, a lot of making stuff, hanging out in big posses of all the other trailer trash kids. Um, but also a lot of anger. Mum was always tired or very stressed and very cross and I have many memories of sitting out in the gutter 
outside our caravan because mum had banished us for being for breathing possibly um so I don't actually have any memories of my mum not drinking in the evenings very kind during the day if we ever saw her but um spent most of the time staying out of her way yeah and yeah doing stuff that would please her but never quite never quite made it made it no (laughs) so what was life like at school yeah, school I was really um, a major nerd. I worked really hard. I played really hard. I did all the sports. I signed up for any kind of extracurricular activity possible to be able to prove my worth. Um, and anything I set my mind to, I just did it. Had lots of friends um, and continued that way right through high school um only difference was is I found that there's a lot of judgment placed on my household that I felt um because I had a single mum who was younger than all the other mums and she had a fierce temper that everyone knew about so I did have someone say they couldn't come to my house to play once because they were washing their hair (laughs) and (laughs) Uh, it never left me because I thought, we're in grade three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, bloody yeah. hair's not that important. Yeah, exactly. And I knew it was my mum, yeah. you know? Yeah. So um, did – you said that she was angry. Mm. Did she ever – was she ever violent towards you? Or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, this could be a bit of a trigger for some. Once when I when we'd moved out of the caravan park into a farm rental, uh, I had undone her washing accidentally hiding in a cupboard. My brother and I were playing, and um, she was so angry that I had undone this washing that she she beat me with a wire coat hanger. Um, and it was the middle of summer, and I had to wear long sleeve jeans and long sleeve t-shirt for the next week because of the welts on my body. Wow. Um, it was nothing for her to, you know, you, <clears throat> another time I had some friends over and we heard <laughs> mum screaming in the kitchen and suddenly we looked across and there was a chair flying across the kitchen. So yeah, it was a really normalised part of my childhood. Yep. So yeah. did you have any self-esteem issues? I knew I was capable of doing anything I set my mind to, but I always, I never felt like I was as good as everyone else. Um, my dad leaving, I didn't think it was my fault, but I thought I, it was because I wasn't enough to make him want to stay. When I, um, at school, you know, my parents, my mum was never invited to any of the other family things where people were getting together. Um, when mum remarried when I was 12 and I went suddenly went to a girls' private girls' school and was driven, being driven to school in a Porsche, I was still very much the country girl with a mental mum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was very conflicting. Okay. So did you, going to a new school, did you find some release that you could start breaking the pattern? No. 
No, I, I, well, I guess I just, it made me try harder. Yeah, okay. It made me do better. I was inventing homework to do so that I could be the best at everything. Yeah. So did you stay out of your mum's way? That's another traditional mm. thing. Yeah. Just, Absolutely. Yeah. Be, become good at study. Yeah. Because it gets you out of the way. Yeah. yeah. I often, and if I if we had had an argument, I would often spend between two and three hours sitting in the cupboard in my bedroom uh, to avoid her. Um, I wanted to go and do all these sports and things, but she quite often would prevent me because she didn't want me to be out all the time. It was like, why don't you want to be here? We're your family. Um, So, yeah, it was very conflicting. She once wouldn't let me go to a party until I had cleaned the house from top to bottom. (laughs) And then it was like 10 minutes before the party was due and she was like, okay, you can go, I guess. You know, mm. so... Very controlling. Very controlling. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, back to you, Emily. Um, so getting on okay at school, mm. school was fine. School was a school bit of a retreat. So yeah. School how- was the place that I turned up every day, just did the bare minimum and everyone clapped. <laughs> um, I probably shouldn't say I did the bare minimum. I, I found study easy. It came naturally. I was, you know... Um, I've been blessed with that kind of mind that, um, you know, can be absorbed in things for hours. Um, so I always loved school. I loved school. You know, I had my fair share of um, a co- conflict in the normal storm that happens around growing up. But I also found that I, um, you know, inspired loathing and love. <laughs> I was a character that was divisive, I suppose. You either loved me or you hated me. Um, and uh, But I'd learned how to... Um, I'd learned that I could go to the library. I'd learned how to, you know... Um, you know, you asked one if she had a self-esteem problem. I, um, I had a self-esteem problem. I thought I was better than everyone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that I knew all the answers and that there was this... You know, that it was totally possible for me to achieve um, uh, angelic perfection. And I, my mother and father had since long since divorced and my mum had become really into New Age spirituality. So spiritual, um, you know, uh, glowing with, with righteousness was something that I, you know, aimed, aspired to. Um, that's probably yeah. So story. so moving out of home then. So get to the end of high school. Um, I didn't get to the end of high school. Okay. Yeah, I I did not get to the end of high school. I um, left in year eleven. I was elected school captain, and then I left school. As <laughs> you do, arts captain should caveat that. Um, and I left school because my mum had. Um, I'd let. I'd moved in with my father and his new wife and I love my stepmother today but we had a very fraught relationship in those days and it was basically um, me constantly seeking approval from her and her not particularly inclined to give it over and above, you know, just normal recognition. (laughs) Um, She, you know, my dad um, and she were 
didn't offer a particularly functional home. It was a not a home that was filled with love and attention towards the kids in the home. It was a home where um, there was a lot of television and a lot of, you know, dad was at the pub a lot. Um, but that was better than the, f- the daily war war zone of living with my mum. But um, my mum always saw my relationship with my father, whom I, you know, rightly or wrongly idolised as a personal affront to her. Um, and, you know, given that... Uh, given that he let her down constantly, and she did experience his inability to meet her expectations as constantly being let down, rightly or wrongly, um, the fact that I then sought his company and his approval and his... Um, attention was really really difficult for her she still struggles with it <laughs> um yeah and i didn't finish year t- 11 i moved in with um some friends and i had had realized that my home life was going to make it impossible for me to achieve what i wanted to achieve or thought i could achieve in year 12 and it would have this big impact on the rest of my life if i didn't take some time away from my home life. So I moved to Canberra with my boyfriend and I did year 12 a year later and um, I worked really hard and I lived with my boyfriend and um, some adults with special needs. It was a great deal. We didn't have to pay rent. Um, And I did year 12 and I, um, yeah, smashed it. Mm. Now, one of the things that you said to me when we were discussing it before the show, was you made a quote, no one escapes without scars from no. an alcoholic home. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, the narrative that I have about my upbringing now and about the environment I grew up in is very new. It's because I have a diagnosis of family disease. Because I understand the disease of alcoholism because of... Al-Anon, I'm able to look back and say my mother is an adult child, my father is an alcoholic. At the time, it was my dad was a lazy, no-for-good booze head, and my mum was a crazy bitch. I mean, that was that was the narrative that we had to work with. That was the explanation. Dad didn't love us enough, and mum, there was definitely something wrong with her. Um, <laughs> my, you know, no... My siblings and I had each other, and that still to this day is this enormous source of comfort. But my sister and I would get on the phone with each other after every little thing and try and dissect it and try and manage it and understand it. And I had to um, move out of the home where they all lived when I was a child. Like when I was about 14, I had to, you know, for my own, I thought I was, I thought I was either going to um, commit suicide or commit murder. So I I left and went and lived with my dad. It was really hard to leave those kids by themselves. My brother ended up leaving um, school in year 10 and he never completed high school and he, um, you know, he moved to the city and he was also queer and that has comes with its own challenges. But um, he, you know, he fell into prostitution and drug use and has had serious substance um, issues and they're ongoing. Um... My sister, she is, um, my brother calls her a slog monster, and I think that's the best description. She works her guts out for everybody, mm. for everybody else. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
Thank you. Well, listen, we might take a break. You're listening to Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Um, podcasts of our show are available on 3cr.org.au forward slash living free and they're also available on iTunes or your preferred platform. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, then you can call the station on 94198377 or you can email us at 3crlivingfree at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter if you're interested. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Hi, I'm talking with um, Emily and Juanita about the family disease of alcoholism and how it affects us. Um, So I'll start with you, uh, Juanita. How how did you get a bit of respite from your mum in your late late teens <laughs> yeah interestingly enough we had a um, a really massive turnaround in the family where my mum remarried and she married quite a wealthy man from melbourne so we moved to the city and i guess respite came for me in the form of having another adult in the house uh i would still do way too much and work too much um but having my stepfather in the house uh, was shifted the shame that I had come from uh, growing up in the country to you know living this life of Riley and there was still a lot of alcohol in the house and in our social life and lots of dinner parties and stuff but it seemed to be somehow more acceptable because there was lots of money attached to it Um there's always a lot of fighting, though, in the house, a lot of fighting with my mum and my stepfather, and I was always being told to mind my own business because I had all the solutions for their marriage problems. Um, <laughs> That's strange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and eventually I, when I finished uni, I left. I went overseas. I stayed away for about 13 years, Mm. Um, which people praised me for being so brave and you're such an explorer and all the rest of it. And I like to tell myself that as well and go, oh, you know, it's nothing. Really, I just couldn't cope being at home uh, with my mum's second divorce. I couldn't cope. I just couldn't look at her. I had no sympathy for her. She made me feel physically ill. Um, I thought she'd failed again because she was such a nutcase that she was incapable of keeping anyone in her life. Mm. Um, so running away, <laughs> which I'm now able to see that that's exactly what I was doing mm. um, now that I'm in Al-Anon, uh, enabled me to not have to see it every day. And, and yeah, I took the guilt with me. I took all the issues and the problem-solving uh, but I didn't have to see her. Yeah. So were you ashamed of your mum? Oh, 
yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, look, it was it was conflicting because, as I said before, she was young, she was beautiful, um, very bright despite having not finished high school, um, vivacious. You know, she was one of the co- she was the coolest mum out of all the mums, and I thought that was pretty awesome. But um, she didn't. Uh, she wasn't backward in coming forward if she didn't like you or your friends or something you were doing. And I think she had put off virtually anyone I'd ever introduced her to. Right. <laughs> very, very helpful. <laughs> okay, back to you, Emily, then. Um, so you did a geographical to get out of home. So yep. how did that progress? Um, pretty well for me, actually, because I... I I always managed while I was growing up to attach myself to more functional families. So my boyfriend in Canberra, his family were lovely and just so, um, you know, they were both academics and, you know, they had really interesting books on their shelves. Not that my parents weren't readers, but um, so this kind of like inserting myself into another life was you know, such a great strategy for a really long time. Um, and with him, you know, um, I, I don't know if it t- clicked at the time that he had um, drug dependency. I don't know. Um, there's definitely always a lot of marijuana around. And I tended to seek friendships where there were drug and alcohol, where drug and alcohol was being used. And, you know... Um, but always in that kind of, like, the cool kids at uni type thing. Um, yeah. The art, the art, <laughs> the, the art school crowd. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, but whenever a problem would come up, like, and I would become discontent in the relationship, I'd find myself being unfaithful to the person that I was with, um, and then I would just move on. Yeah. And often that moving on would be a physical move to another place, another city. So I've, you know, lived, it was like Canberra, Sydney, where I grew up, down in Melbourne, China, you know. <laughs> um, and I, I'd had this, I had this lovely fantasy about this beautiful life I was going to lead where I was, you know, full of adventure and romance and intrigue and wonderful, um, uh, you know, travels, lots of travel. I always thought I would travel abroad um i came back from china and had um told myself when i went to china that i wouldn't get into a relationship i think i had three or something (laughs) (laughs) um uh and i came back with uh, somebody i'd met in china who um we then I just you know I inserted myself into his life, but his life wasn't good enough, and he was a bit depressed, and he in hindsight is an alcoholic. Um, so because I was discontent with him, it was definitely his fault. So I moved on, and then I met my husband, who you can't fault really, although I tried hard. Um, and um, I was really young; I think I was twenty-two when I met um, my husband, and. He was just such a safe, beautiful human, um, is, and we, um, 
and he w- wasn't an alcoholic and he w- wasn't a drug user. He was just perfect. Um, ticked all of the boxes, you know. He, when I moved to Melbourne and I met him, you know, I basically just, I met him through a friend and essentially just never left. Like <laughs> I met him in his own home and then I never left. <laughs> That's pretty much what happened. Um, so that sort of pattern of inserting myself into someone else's existence and just sticking around, um, uh, that, that happened there. And, you know, but, like, I had this deep expectation that he would deliver the life that I wanted, you know, this travel and trepid, adventurous life. But, you know, he was just so content to stay in Melbourne and do his job every day be a good provider and then we um I went back to Canberra came up finished university and we um fell pregnant with my son I was 21 and um then we had we had a baby and then we had another baby and suddenly I couldn't do a geographical I was trapped in my discontentment (laughs) with two beautiful babies and um you know it was it was a really happy time in my life in retrospect because my husband was deeply committed to doing everything that he could to make me happy and I had um, the opportunity to become involved in a wide group of friends and I had the opportunity to be involved in, um, you know, I didn't have to work. didn't have to work. You know, I was pursuing higher education. I was volunteering at things that were, you know, again, um, going somewhere every day where people would I'd do the bare minimum people would clap it was <laughs> just a dream yeah so what went wrong what went wrong um what happened was um succinctly I had an affair with an alcoholic eight years my junior which was incredibly passionate and incredibly destructive and I went from you know being pretty comfortable atop my pedestal, um, smugness and self-righteousness. And my stepfather sometimes calls my father sanctimonious. That's a really good adjective. Um, And my behaviour as this relationship unfolded became so, um, you know, in Eleanor we call it unmanageable. But it was just crazy. Like, I was insane, <laughs> the things that I was doing um, to try. And, you know, what was happening was that uh, he was there and he was, like, everything I could have asked for, you know, in terms of being a friend and, and sexual chemistry and this intense, passionate connection. And then he would just be gone. And then he'd be drunk, mm. you know. Yeah. He'd be gone emotionally. He would withdraw completely inside himself. I couldn't reach him and I would be thrown into this despair and I'd do anything in my power um, to try and draw him back to me. Um, And that looked like leaving my kids for long periods of time, staying up until 2am in the morning, smoking a lot of we drinking a lot with him, um, sort of abandoning my duties as a, a wife and a parent and um, 
chasing him down the street sometimes, calling over and over and over again, sometimes just to hear the message. This person is unavailable. (laughs) (laughs) So did that wreck your marriage? Yeah. (laughs) Right. It didn't wreck my friendship with my husband, but um, it certainly required a massive... Well, I couldn't be in my marriage. I couldn't be in my marriage. I was trying to do... You were somewhere else. I was somewhere else. I was completely out out of my... I was obsessed and I was in that obsession, but I was tearing myself apart because on the one hand, I was trying to be the wife and mother and they're in my family home, trying to be everything to them whilst also trying to manage this intense relationship and feeling guilty on both accounts. And I really tore myself apart. I really, yeah, I fell fell very badly. Okay. Um, Juanita, so you're overseas, you're having a great life. What Mm. happens? Am I having a great life? (laughs) I don't know. If you call drinking a two-litre bottle of pulse cider for two pounds each night and waking up in bed not knowing how I got there. That wasn't really a good life. Not having any money because I'd actually only gone with $70. That wasn't um, very good. Uh, So, yeah, I lived in the UK. Then I moved back to Australia one night when my mum rang me saying she couldn't cope anymore she wanted to die, you must come home I caught the next plane home when I got home she hadn't even recalled telling me how devastating her life was so then I attached myself to a boy who from Sydney, moved to Sydney uh, then there I met who a guy who was going to be, become my husband who was everything that my family wasn't he was from overseas, he was educated, his parents were together, all the things. Uh, moved to Hong Kong, we got married, we had a child, came back to Australia. So whilst I was... Actually, Hong Kong was really great. The first few years of our marriage was really great. Um, then we moved back to Australia and everything kind of went to pot then. Um, I became more controlling, more pleasing... Uh, I had, he was a real people pleaser as well. He gave me everything. I never let a day go by without thanking my lucky stars for this incredible man who loved me so much. Mm. Um, but, yeah, jealousy kind of tore us apart uh, when he started to, I, what I felt, get more value out of other people's company than mine. Mm. And resentment set in where I was working full time, felt like I was constantly breeding um, and working and didn't know what I wanted anymore. I was so absorbed in his life because I think I had the illusion that whatever he did must be right because because where I came from was nothing but shit (laughs) (laughs) or, you know, nothing but blue collar, drunken, Massive alcoholic family, which I've since discovered alcohol is just out, it's everywhere. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, things really started to go downhill very quickly. Okay, listen, we might stop there. Uh, you're listening to Living Free on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. I'm chatting with Emily and Juanita about the family disease of alcoholism. So, 
Emily, we um, you had a hmm. a raging affair. Raging it was. <laughs> raging affair. So how did that end? It took a long time. It ended. It ended after I'd been in Al-Anon for a number of years, um, because it was very, very, very difficult for me to let go of that, and. Um, it was the first time I ever had my heart broken. Um, and there was something very deeply compelling in that relationship that sucked all my energy and my myself into it. Um, but I was absolutely broken by it. Um, the effort of trying to maintain my family and also have this relationship that felt absolutely and utterly outside of my control. I tried so many times to just set strong boundaries. No, not going to see him anymore. And then I'd break up with him and I'd, you know, cry for two weeks and then I'd crawl back and he'd always... You know, he'd always take me back. Um, and that went on for years. Um, but during this period, I'd, I'd essentially um, had to stop working. I couldn't hold down a job. I couldn't continue at university. I could barely parent. I was parenting my children through what felt like a glass wall. Um, many years later, Juanita actually lent me um, the bell jar by Sylvia Plath and her description of being inside of a bell jar was precisely how I felt. Um, I had lost my mind. I'd lost my reputation. I'd had a series of um, public and humiliating episodes where I had just attacked friends or, um, oh, God, the worst one was um, I went to a barbecue that was held by my best friend on like the day she discovered she was diagnosed with cancer and I cried about where I was at the entire time. And she, it was their wedding anniversary. And she said, I, I, just, just the insanity of that and just the complete self-absorption and self-centeredness of that. But I didn't realise I had a choice but to be there trying to fulfil this obligation to my friend. At that point, I, I really wasn't able to accept that I was sick. And someone suggested I go and get therapy, and I was like, I don't think I need that. How very <laughs> dare you? Um, but I did. I did actually go and get help. It became, you know, when a stranger who had just witnessed something that had happened between a friend of mine and myself said, you know what, maybe you might want to get some help love I went and saw a, a counsellor and that was helpful but um in order to manage the depression and the anxiety that I was feeling because you know if anyone anyone who's experienced anxiety will be familiar with the 5am wakings with you know the train of thought that just can't you can't stop and I'd, I'd get up and I'd you know it's, I'd started writing a lot of um really depressing poetry as you do um but I was managing my emotions by bushwalking and this one particular morning, I'd just found out a friend of mine from university had killed herself. And, um, oh, gosh, there was so much of me that was just envious <laughs> of that. Um, 
but still critical of the way that she'd done this. She could have chosen a more, you know, um, beautiful, poetic, befitting end. Um, so I went bushwalking and I, I had a really important um, and powerful spiritual awakening. I um, had been walking through the gorge and there was a very scary part of the gorge, or at least I was scared. It was in darkness and I, I, I don't know why, I just couldn't go on. And in that moment I was just so filled with despair. Um, it was the first time I genuinely prayed and I was brought up in an intensely like bashed over the head with new age spiritualist kind of environment. So I was deeply atheist at that point. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I decided in that moment there was something bigger than myself. Right. Okay. Um, Back to you, Anita. So when did you start thinking you needed to get some help? Mm. Well, I always, I, I started getting help in my early 20s, actually, I saw my first therapist to go and get help for my little brother who came from the second marriage because um, I knew my mum, from my own experience, I knew mum wouldn't give a toss about how he was feeling. It was all about how she'd been abandoned and everything like that. So I went to get help in supporting my little brother get through that. I went to a series of um, therapists throughout my 20s uh all of whom just told me how sad my life had been and how mistreated I'd been and never actually telling me never actually getting me to be accountable for my own behavior um always trying to give me ways to deal with other people's bad behavior but not really looking at at some of the crazy things I was doing so um I went to when my ex-husband now ex-husband had had an affair with someone and the day he left the day he told me he was going he said it's really hard living with someone like you and living with your depression every day it's really hard and um I thought how very dare you if you weren't such an ass (laughs) I wouldn't be this depressed um anyway so I did go to a couple of therapists, but they just weren't cutting. They d- I just wasn't helping. Anyway, so then I'd heard about Al-Anon through a friend uh, who was going to, who had started Al-Anon. But as she, when she started, she was also going through a very manic, crazy stage of her life. And I actually, being the adult child that I am, wanted to go and make sure that she hadn't joined some kind of cult and wanted to go and check in to make sure that she wasn't just becoming addicted to something else. Yeah. Uh, so I went. As you do. Um, so I went, but I also went because of the change I had seen in her in the month or two that she had been going was so profound. I wanted to get an idea of how that happened and I wanted some of it uh, because I was at a stage myself having been a single mum for three years at this stage, four years, so much resentment for my ex. My mum, I hadn't spoken to her for 18 months. Um, I really just wanted to die. I did not want to be here anymore 
idea of being struck down with being riddled with cancer would would have been joyous news for me. Mm. So um, I really couldn't, didn't have the energy to live like that anymore. So I really needed something to change. Mm. So what did Alan do for you? <gasps> oh, he changed so much. One of the greatest things Alanon did for me was teach me that it's okay to say no. Um, I, I I always thought that I had to because you know I have these secret powers that I have the best ideas and the best <laughs> uh, magical solutions to everyone's problems. Uh, I always said yes to everyone and got involved in everyone's dramas which took up a hell of a lot of time uh, and I actually generally didn't help anyway uh, learning that with the knowledge that my mum opens her first bottle at four o'clock in the afternoon and that's when she becomes nasty and revolting knowing that I don't have to take her calls or answer her texts was like a revelation to mm, me you've got choices yeah absolutely <laughs> Learning that I could say to people, yeah, I don't feel like doing that or um, learning that when other people have issues, I don't have to be on the phone saying, what can I do to help? Um, it's, it's opened up so much more time and uh, probably another one of the greatest things is knowing that even when I'm in the deepest, deepest pain or stress or despair that I have a program to go to. Mm. Knowing that I have a higher power looking after me, knowing that I can just walk into the rooms and be in the fellowship and am surrounded by people who actually get it, uh, takes the edge off like my antidepressants never did. (laughs) (laughs) Never never worked that well. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, how about you, Emily? What was your first Al-Anon meeting like? Mm-hmm. I was taken to an Al-Anon meeting by a dear friend, and I will be forever grateful to her. But my first meeting was um, in Footscray. It was full of, you know, old men, weird people. Um, but I sat and I listened. And I there was this one young woman who spoke at length so much honesty and so much vulnerability about how she shouldn't have sent the text but she sent the text and then (laughs) things that you know she'd gone back into that old behavior and she was you know she'd called a sponsor and she's trying to do step one she was just having a she was she was speaking the way that people do when they share with open honest and willing spirit and i identified with everything she said down to the mind, you know, identified with her, identified with her outfit, identified with the text message story, like yeah. the whole thing, you yeah. know. Yeah. And she's the reason I kept coming back. Never seen her again. Um, but I came back and I I knew after that first meeting that I'd found some relief. There was there was a place. This was it. This is going to help. And holy crap, I'm going to be held accountable by these people. Um, and I didn't realise how much I needed that accountability. Um, the first thing that I was received was a newcomer's pack. And in that pack there is a bookmark or a card called Just For Today. That's enough. Sometimes that's the only message you need, Just yeah. For Today. But that card told me that I didn't need to tackle all of my problems all at once and that I could live one day at a time. 
Um, and on the back of that card is the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, which I still go to regularly. And I, mm. I had been looking for a spiritual solution because I'd done step two in the gorge with the wedge-tailed eagle and the, you know, and I, when I saw the step, you know, that we'd be restored to sanity if we came to believe. I, I knew I was in the right place. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, thank you both for coming in today. It's been a pleasure having you. Uh, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank you both, Emily thank and Juanita, you. for coming in and sharing your story. Thanks, Bill. Um, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week uh, when we'll be talking about recovery from gambling addiction and we'll be joined by Liz and Adam, who are members of Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, Stay tuned now for Black Noise Radio, hosted by Kerry Lee and featuring black news and views, current affairs, music, sport, culture and the arts, all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. Thanks for listening to Living Free Program today.